Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Emerging some 700 years ago in Spain, the Zohar is considered the great medieval compendium of mysticism, myth, and esoteric teaching, and perhaps the highest expression of Jewish literary imagination in the Middle Ages. The 12-volume English translation and encyclopedic commentary on the Zohar Pritzker edition by Stanford University Press has become the authoritative and standard version for the English-speaking world, and the first nine volumes were composed by Daniel C. Matt. Join us as we speak with Daniel Matt about the Zohar, the Book of Radiance, a classic text of Kabbalah which has mystified and amazed readers for centuries. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Daniel C. Matt is a leading authority on Jewish mysticism. He served as professor at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and is also taught at Stanford University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His publications, in addition to the Zohar Pritzker edition, include The Essential Kabbalah, 1995, God and the Big Bang, 1996, and Zohar, Annotated and Explained, 2002. Daniel, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Good to be with you. So, Daniel, would you give us a basic introduction to the Zohar? When and where did this text emerge, and what is its message or purpose? Yes, uh, the, the Zohar is a fascinating text. Uh, you could say it's a commentary on the Bible. It's a mystical commentary on the Bible, trying to scratch the surface and look for some spiritual meaning, some personal spiritual meaning within the text. You know, for most books, it's not too hard to say when it was written and where it was written. For the Zohar, even that is a challenge because uh, traditionally it's attributed to an ancient rabbinic sage, a man named Shimon, the son of Yochai, who lived in the second century in the land of Israel in Palestine. But it was probably actually written over a thousand years later in medieval Spain in the 13th century in Christian Spain where there was a sizable Jewish community and also a Muslim community. So within Spain, uh, the movement known as Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition, the movement of Kabbalah was just really beginning in medieval Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. And in Spain, there were, there were small groups of Kabbalists, of Jewish mystics, studying the texts. And out of their study, out of their spiritual search and their study, emerged this, this immense commentary on the Torah, on the five books of Moses, the first five books of, of the Bible, the Jewish and Christian Bible. So it was most probably written in Spain. So the question is, why do people, why do traditional Kabbalists believe that it was back a thousand years earlier in the second century? That's quite a gap. Second century Palestine, 13th century Spain. The person who probably was the main composer of the Zohar was a Jewish mystic named Moses de Leon, Leon being a district in, in northwestern Spain. 
So is Moses de Leon was one of these Kabbalists in 13th century Spain, and he composed the Zohar most likely probably over five or 10 or 15 years. It's usually printed in, in three volumes. Uh, my edition and translation runs to 12 volumes because the Zohar demands so much commentary, but it's an immense text. And the question is, why didn't he come out and say that he wrote the book? He attributed it to this ancient sage Rabbi Shimon. Basically, he may have felt that he was in touch with this ancient rabbi, or maybe that he was even channeling his wisdom. So he wrote it in Spain, but attributed it to this ancient sage. And the reason the Zohar had such a great impact on Judaism is because people believed that the book really was that ancient. Now, this is not very unusual in the history of religion. Books are often attributed to authors who lived long before they were written. But in any case, the Zohar first emerged in Spain, certainly. No one ever refers to it earlier than the 13th century. The Zohar emerged in Spain in the 13th century. For the, few, for the first few hundred years of its existence, it was only studied in small circles. That's because it was written in Aramaic. Why was it written in Aramaic? Partly, you could say, to make it look ancient. In the Middle Ages, Jews didn't write in Aramaic much at all. They wrote in Hebrew. And the Zohar was written in Aramaic to make it look ancient, also to make it difficult. The Zohar is intentionally difficult. It's intentionally cryptic. It's the kind of book that you really only understand if you meditate on it, if you study it with a teacher, with a friend. It's not a book you can just pick up and, and read through. Even in the English translation, it's still difficult. I know one reviewer said it's still in Aramaic, even in the English. But the Aramaic is intentionally cryptic. And uh, that's why it was only studied in small circles, but gradually its influence spread really when it, was, uh, when it was used by Jewish ethical writers and other commentators on the Bible. Gradually the, the influence of the Zohar spread, it became the major text of the Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. So what does it say? What is its message? The Zohar moves sequentially, chapter by chapter, through the first five books of the Bible, through the five books of Moses, looking for a deeper meaning. But it really has a, a new understanding of God. I would say new and ancient simultaneously. And it's interesting that the Zohar calls its teachings new ancient words. It's as if the Zohar is aware there's something brand new and radically new, and yet something very traditional, very deeply traditional, so in approaching the, the question of who is God, what is God, the Zohar really gives a new name to God. Of course, there are many biblical names for God. The Zohar adds a new name, Ein Sof. Two Hebrew words, you could spell the first one E-I-N, Ein means there is not. Sof, S-O-F, end. There is no end. Ein Sof means the infinite or infinity. That is the name the Zohar and the Kabbalah apply to God. God is now infinite. Of course, God is always infinite, was always infinite. But for the Zohar, God's name is infinity. And really for the Zohar, all the other names for God, even the biblical names for God, do not fully express the ultimate reality of God because it's inexpressible. So the Zohar is really admitting that we cannot conceptualize God. We cannot encompass God with our puny human intellect. And that's why it insists that ultimately the most accurate thing to say about God is 
and so infinite. Of course, it's hard to relate to the infinite. You can't really step back and relate to the infinite. We're part of infinity. So how do you call out to this God who's infinite? And that's why the Zohar says it's true that ultimately God is infinite, but God can be addressed. God can be imagined in many, in many ways. And to balance that infinity of God, the Zohar revels in imagination, in imagining who God could be, imagining the colors of God, the aspects of God's personality. And here I would say the main contribution of the Zohar is to insist that even though ultimately God is beyond gender, God is infinite, our current picture of God is very, very imbalanced because we only speak of God as he, father, king, judge. So the Zohar insists that God is equally male and female, ultimately beyond all gender. But if we're going to describe God, we have to make up for the lack of the feminine. We have to restore the feminine half of God. That's really what the Zohar does, which is never referred to in the Bible, maybe very indirectly with a poetic image, a, a metaphor in a few of the prophets. But the Zohar insists God is, is equally male and female, and its name for the feminine nature of God, for the feminine half of God, is Shekhinah, literally dwelling, or the divine presence. So ultimately, God is infinite. But if we're going to talk about God, we should balance the male with the female. And I would say the last thing to say now about the Zohar is that it says that God needs us. In some way, God is incomplete without, without our active participation. This is a very startling notion. Usually we picture God as complete, as, as uh, without any fault, as certainly beyond description. But to say that God is incomplete in some way sounds heretical or insane, but the Zohar says, no, we are, we are bound up with God. We are linked with God, and what we do actually has an effect on God. Specifically, Shekhinah, the, the feminine, needs to be united with the masculine half of God. It's actually a union that occurs within God, and that union depends on what? It depends primarily on human beings acting ethically, on virtuous action. So I think that's uh, just one other thing about the context in Spain. It's very helpful to know when and where the Zohar was written. As I said, that's difficult to pin down, but now it's pretty clear. It's very clear the Zohar was basically composed in Spain, even though it was attributed to that ancient author, Rabbi Shimon. But what's happening in Spain at this time? Spain is run is ruled by Alfonso, by one of the Christian Spanish monarchs, a man named Alfonso X. But he was also called Alfonso the Wise, Alfonso el Sabio. And the reason for that is because Alfonso, this is the king of Spain, the second half of the 13th century. That king of Spain, Alfonso the Wise, had a project to gather all of the wisdom of the world in a sense, this is really a renaissance. We think of the renaissance as 15th century Italy, but this was a renaissance in Spain in the 13th century. Alfonso gathered Greek wisdom, wisdom that was not yet available in any European language. He hired Muslims and Jews to translate works of Greek philosophy, for example, from Arabic into Castilian. 
Castilian is Spanish, but that language was just emerging at that point. There's not much of a Castilian literature until Alfonso X. Alfonso the Wise really created a library of literature in Castilian. He wanted to gather all of the wisdom of the world. And he may have actually been interested. He, he, he was interested in Jewish wisdom, too, in the Talmud, in rabbinic teachings, and in the Kabbalah. So there may be some connection between the composition of the Zohar and Alfonso's Renaissance project. The Zohar is the main text of Kabbalah, something of a mystical strand in Judaism. Would you explain this for us? Yes, it's good that we that we do that. Zohar and Kabbalah are, are often spoken of uh, in tandem. And I think the best way to think of it is really, as you put it, the Zohar is the masterpiece of Kabbalah. So there's no book called the Kabbalah. If people say they're studying the Kabbalah, they probably mean they're studying the Zohar, because the Zohar is the main text of Kabbalah. So Kabbalah is a name for the entire philosophy of mysticism, for the entire uh, movement of Jewish mysticism, at least from the Middle Ages and to modern times. So how did Kabbalah emerge within Judaism? First of all, I think it's good to start with the literal, simple meaning of the word. Zohar means radiance or splendor. The book of radiance actually taken from the book of Daniel. Daniel says the enlightened will shine like the Zohar of the sky. The enlightened will shine like the brilliance of the sky. So that was the origin of the name of the book. The word Kabbalah literally means receiving. So it's that which has been received, and therefore it means tradition, wisdom that's been handed down from master to disciple over the ages. So Kabbalah means tradition. So it doesn't necessarily mean mysticism. It could be any tradition. In the Talmud, the main book of rabbinic teaching, the Talmud will use the word Kabbalah to refer to books of the Bible. Certain books of the Bible are called Kabbalah, the prophets, for example. But later, Kabbalah comes to mean basically oral traditions that have not yet been written down. And therefore, it also means secret traditions or meditative traditions that were passed down carefully from master to disciple, sometimes whispered, often not written down, but just, just transmitted orally. And so gradually the word Kabbalah comes to mean mystical teaching. And it's really in the, in the 13th century that the word from then on, the word means specifically the Jewish mystical tradition. So this is a little bit before the Zohar. Kabbalah, you could say, really starts to emerge in, in Provence, in southern France, and then spilling over the Pyrenees into Spain. That's really the 12th and 13th centuries. That's when Kabbalah comes to mean Jewish mysticism. So that's what uh, develops in, in Spain. And the Zohar is such a, uh, such a beautiful, lyrical, perplexing, intriguing text that from then on it became the major Kabbalistic text. And in fact, you might say that most of Kabbalah from then on is simply attempts to explain the Zohar, to interpret it, to understand it, to translate it. And uh, in that sense, it really is the, the core of, of the Kabbalah. Just one other thing, in terms of earlier roots of mysticism, we could really go back to the Bible itself. The book of Psalms, right, is filled with calling out to God, with feeling God's presence. If mysticism means direct experience of God, we certainly find that in the Psalms. We find it in the prophets. Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. Ezekiel has a wild vision of God, right, who's being transported through heaven 
in a chariot throne. And that becomes a major, uh, a major symbol. And you could say Kabbalah really, really uh, is based in part on that mystical vision of Ezekiel and with attempts to re-experience what Ezekiel experienced. There were meditative techniques developed so that, so that Jewish devotees could, could re-envision what Ezekiel envisioned. That, in some ways, is the beginning of, of Kabbalah, taking the roots that were there in the Bible and expanding them into a full system with techniques for meditation. Now, the Zohar publication comprises 12 volumes. You composed the first nine volumes. Tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Zohar, and how long did this project take you? Right. Well, uh, I was always uh, uh, interested in, uh, in Jewish texts because my father was a rabbi, and I studied with him weekly and, uh, you know, just uh, grew up with that as my role model. So I learned uh, Bible and some of the traditional commentaries, and, uh, but because my father was so spiritually sensitive and such a, you know, he, people used to tell me that he was one of the 36 hidden righteous ones. There's a, there's a myth that 36 righteous people keep the world going. And if one of them dies, another one pops up. And if anyone tells you that they are one of the 36, that's a clear sign that they're not. Because one has to be humble to be one of them. So I remember people would tell me, you know, your father is one of the 36. So I, I grew up seeing him as, as a spiritual light. And because of that, I wanted to find the spiritual teachings within Judaism. He had presented many of them. But uh, then I came across Hasidism, which is a more recent form of Jewish mysticism. And uh, I became interested in Hasidic texts. I started studying them. This is my in college years already. And books by Martin Buber, writings by Martin Buber about Hasidism. But I noticed in the Hasidic text that they often quoted the Zohar. It was sometimes just a phrase or a word, uh, but I was very intrigued by it. The Zohar is in Aramaic. So even though I was studying these texts in Hebrew, the Aramaic words really stand out. They have a unique flavor to them. And the Zohar is very poetic, very lyrical. So I was intrigued by that, and I decided I wanted to explore the Zohar. And my junior year abroad, I went to Jerusalem, to the Hebrew University, and I saw that as my opportunity to delve into this great classic of, of the Kabbalah. So I knew I only had one year. I took beginning Zohar and advanced Zohar at the same time, which was kind of crazy. And I was really lost totally in advanced Zohar. But I was also lost in beginning Zohar, so it didn't really matter that much. Zohar is kind of like that. You're jumping into the sea, into the ocean, and trying to make your way and, and come out in one piece. So I, I explored Zohar intensively that year. Then I returned to Brandeis where I was studying and finished my undergraduate work. And I decided I wanted to do a doctorate in Jewish mysticism. There are very few places in the country at that point where you could specialize in Kabbalah uh, in an academic program. But Brandeis was just about the only place like that. So I did my doctoral work focusing on, on the Zohar actually an early translation of the Zohar from Aramaic to Hebrew. I edited that, that text from manuscripts. And I remember people telling me that uh, you, know, you have to be careful what you pick for uh, your dissertation topic, because that's going to determine your scholarly career. 
And I said, no, that's ridiculous. I'm doing this now and I'll go on to do other things. And I finished my doctorate and I started teaching Jewish studies one year at the University of Texas at Austin. But then from 1979 on, I taught in Berkeley where I still live uh, at the Graduate Theological Union. Very interesting school that, that has Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist studies, a lot of good dialogue, good uh, inter, interrelationships. And I taught Jewish studies there for, for 20 years, focusing on, on Kabbalah. I wrote a book called The Essential Kabbalah, some teachings of the Zohar and other books, and another book, God and the Big Bang, on parallels between Jewish mysticism and modern cosmology, modern science. So I was, I was happy teaching and, uh, and enjoyed doing that. But then in the mid-1990s, uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was conveying an offer from a very wealthy family, a wealthy Jewish family in Chicago named the Pritzkers. They own the Hyatt Hotels and various other business ventures. A woman in that family was in love with the Zohar. She wanted to study the Zohar. She was studying with a, an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago, and they were using an older English translation, which is sometimes called the Sonsino translation. It was done in the 1930s, published by the Sonsino Press. And they were studying the Zohar in that English translation, but the rabbi was very critical of that translation. He just said it didn't convey the power of the Zohar. It wasn't full, it wasn't accurate. There was no commentary. And so the two of them, Mrs. Pritzker and this rabbi from Chicago decided to, to create a project, a new translation of the Zohar. And they knew that I had worked on the Zohar and, and they approached me and through this friend of mine, they asked me, would you want to translate the Zohar? Now I had some idea of how vast that would be because I had already translated parts of the Zohar. I did a little book for the Paulist Press for a, a Catholic publishing company a series they have called Classics of Western Spirituality. And I did the Zohar volume in that series. And it took me uh, a year, a year or more. And that was 2% of the Zohar. So I knew how much was involved in translating even 2% to now try to translate the whole thing. I realized it would be almost a lifelong project. And I, I said, I have to think about this. And my friend said, sure. I hadn't yet met with the Pritzkers or talked with them or talked with this rabbi. It was just this offer from conveyed by a friend of mine, uh, a mutual acquaintance who they knew and I knew. So he said, of course you should think about it. So I thought about it for a week, for two weeks, for a month, for several months. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't commit to it because I thought it would take me the rest of my life, but I couldn't say no because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And finally I decided I just, I just couldn't do it. So I told my friend, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity, but I have to say no. And my friend was very wise. He said, I understand. Why don't you just meet with them, meet with the Pritzkers and, and tell them no. So I said, okay. So we met uh, a month or two later in, in Chicago. And at the meeting was Mrs. Pritzker and my friend and the rabbi from Chicago. And, and they said to me, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, what we would like you to do to translate the Zohar. I said, look, this is an amazing opportunity, but but uh, I'm hesitant. And Mrs. Pritzker, Margot Pritzker said, well, if you did do it, how long would it take? I said, 12 to 15 years. She said, you're not scaring me. 
And somehow when I heard that, something flipped in my mind and, and I said, okay, I'll do it. I just blurted out that, that I'll do it. So then I began working and, and it took 18 years. It ended up taking 18 years to publish. I worked, I created nine volumes in English of the Zohar's commentary on the Torah. The full edition, the Zohar Pritzker edition contains 12 volumes. Those other three extra volumes were done by two other scholars who worked uh, under my guidance. So that was an amazing project that finished uh, about, about five or six years ago. So basically that's how the project evolved. Author Green's introduction to volume one of the Zohar observes that the Castilian rabbi Moses de Leon was likely the central figure in both writing and the circulation of the Zohar, and that he was probably a Gnostic Kabbalist. Would you tell us more about de Leon he seems to have been an intriguing, if controversial, figure, with some skeptics claiming that he was a charlatan and that the Zohar was a forgery. After his death, did his widow really claim that De Leon had told her he invented the text's ancient origins? Yeah, he must have been uh, a very colorful figure. Unfortunately, we know very little about his life. We don't know the exact year he was born. We're not even certain about the exact year he died. Probably lived from around 1240 to around 1305. So the 13th century, the second half of the 13th century was his creative period. And it's pretty clear now that he was the main composer of the Zohar. Now, if you ask a traditional Kabbalist, a traditional Jewish mystic who wrote the Zohar, as I think we've mentioned before, uh, all traditional Kabbalists and all ultra-Orthodox Jews believe that the Zohar goes back to a thousand years before Moses de Leon that it was written in the land of Israel in the second century by a man named Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. He's called Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. And he's a very well-known figure in Jewish history and Jewish literature. His name appears hundreds of times in the Talmud and the Midrash, in the traditional books of rabbinic teaching. Uh, but Moses de Leon, living 1,100 years later in Spain, Moses de Leon wrote the Zohar, and he attributed it to this ancient Rabbi Shimon. He said that, I found, I found this book, I found this manuscript, and the original was written by Rabbi Shimon and his son, Rabbi Lazar, when they were living in a cave. According to the Talmud, they escaped from the Romans. The Romans were out to get Rabbi Shimon. And because he uh, taught Torah, because he perhaps because he, he promoted some messianic activity that was a threat to the Roman Empire. In any case, uh, Rabbi Shimon was hunted by the Romans. And according to this legend, Rabbi Shimon escaped with his son to a cave where they stayed for 12 years. So the legend of the Zohar is that Rabbi Shimon composed the Zohar in that cave. But really, as I say, historical scholars have pretty much proven that the Zohar was not written back in the second century, that it was written in the 13th century, so the question is, one question is, why didn't Moses de Leon admit that he was the author? Most authors are very proud of what they've written. They want their books reviewed. They want their books praised. They're happy to promote them. Uh, I'm promoting my books today as part of our, our interview, you could say. So why did Moses de Leon take the opposite approach and attribute this masterpiece, what turns out to be the greatest work of Jewish mysticism, really a, a gem, a jewel of, of world literature, why didn't he claim credit? And the answer is probably, at least in part, that he wanted these radical teachings to be accepted. 
he had a new vision of Judaism, a new understanding of God. And if he had said, for example, I have an idea, God is really half female. That might not have gone over so well in a traditional religious society. So what did he say instead? He said the ancient Rabbi Shimon taught us that God is half female. So all of his radical ideas about God and, and how to relate to God, how to imagine God, how to reimagine God, all of those Rabbi, Rabbi Moses de Leon attributed to this ancient sage. And his scheme, his scheme really worked. In other words, the Zohar became accepted as ancient wisdom. It's really one of the canonical Jewish texts, you could say, as holy as the Bible or the Talmud. In some ways, it's the holiest book because it unpacks the deepest meaning. It penetrates the surface meaning of the Bible and finds a deeper, more uplifting spiritual core. And because of that, uh, traditional Jews really treasure the Zohar. Although, as I say, mo many of those traditional Jews attributed to the ancient Rabbi Shimon. So Moses de Leon does this probably over 10 years or something, between five and 15 years, perhaps, writing the Zohar section by section, passing it around to his small circle of, of fellow Jewish mystics in Spain. It was really a secret book. It was only studied in very small circles for decades, even centuries, you might say. Gradually, it found its way to wider circles, and it became the basis of all of, of Kabbalah. Now, some people charge that Moses de Leon, as you indicated, some people say, well, then, then it's a forgery. He claims it's an ancient book, but he wrote it himself. He's trying to pass it off as ancient wisdom. Very likely, it's very likely he was selling it. He was selling the book, pretending that it was ancient wisdom. So what do we do with that claim, that the claim that this holy book was really a forgery, that he was a, a charlatan? It's a complicated question. Um, Moses de Leon was a creative genius. He had an original view, original approach to reading the Bible, to reading holy texts. And he really felt that something was coming through him, some wisdom from beyond, something beyond his normal state of being, his normal state of consciousness. So it's very possible that he felt he was channeling this wisdom from the ancient sages. Maybe he felt he was in touch with that ancient Rabbi Shimon. Maybe he felt he, he was a reincarnation of, of Rabbi Shimon. You have the idea of reincarnation in Kabbalah. So I think, I think we have to see it as an example of uh, how a poet or a sculptor or a great music, musician, a great musical composer. Many of them would say the muse inspired me. It came through me from source, from some source beyond my normal mind. So I think that may well be an element here, but he's also playful. He's something of a rogue, this man, Moses de Leon. He, he knows what he's doing. He, he, he alludes, sometimes in the Zohar itself, he alludes to something being new and ancient new and ancient simultaneously. And that's really what the Zohar is. It's a brand new vision of the Bible, a brand new approach to the Bible, but it pretends to be ancient. It's not uh, an unusual phenomenon in, in religious literature. One of the ideas in Jewish tradition that I find especially rich and profound is the notion of Israel's wilderness camp as the chariot of the Shekinah, which is also included in the Zohar's commentary on Bemidbar. Would you unfold this idea for us? Does the Zohar build or expand on this concept of the Shekinah or Shekinah in Hebrew? 
Yes, that really gives us a chance to explore this idea of the Shekhinah, the divine presence. It's such a central theme in the Zohar. It's really one of the great contributions of the Zohar. So let me talk a little bit in general about Shekhinah and then specifically the image you, you mentioned, the chariot of the Shekhinah. First, I like to start with the word itself, the simple meaning of the word. We did that with the word Kabbalah, receiving, and the word Zohar, meaning radiance. So what does Shekhinah mean? Shekhinah means literally dwelling. Dwelling, uh, the root Shachan is to live, to dwell. In modern Hebrew, uh, Shekhinah is a neighborhood. Uh, in biblical Hebrew, you find the beautiful verse uh, where God says, "V'asuli uh, mikdash b'tocham. Have them build me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. So the word I will dwell is v'shachanti, that, that root shachan. So shachan means to dwell, and it's used already in the Torah about God's dwelling among the people. If, if Israel builds a tabernacle, and what's the name of the tabernacle? The mishkan, the place of dwelling. So Israel builds this mishkan, and God dwells there. So you already have the verb and some nouns based on that root shachan, but you don't have the word shechinah. You have God saying, I will dwell. You have a place of dwelling, the Mishkan. In fact, really, we should translate Mishkan as dwelling, not as tabernacle. Uh, but you don't have the, the word Shekhinah dwelling at God's dwelling or the presence until later. Now, it doesn't have to wait until the Kabbalah or the Zohar. You have the word Shekhinah very frequently in rabbinic literature, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, the main books of rabbinic teaching. So, what do those books say about Shekhinah? They say that. This shows you that God dwells everywhere. Shekhinah is a name for what we call omnipresence. God's being everywhere in the universe. God isn't just in heaven. God is in nature. God is in the marketplace. God is in the home. God is everywhere. We let him in, as some teachers put it. So Shekhinah is the possibility of encountering God. So that idea is already very important before the Kabbalah in, in standard rabbinic Judaism. There in rabbinic texts, you also have the idea that wherever Israel goes in exile, Shekhinah is with them. The Shekhinah accompanies Israel in exile, so God's presence never leaves you. So it's God's presence in the world and God's uh, accompanying Israel in exile. What is new in Kabbalah? Kabbalah takes this idea of Shekhinah and it really develops Shekhinah as the feminine half of God. Shekhinah is not just the divine presence, it's the female divinity. Now, of course, God is not limited to gender. God is not male or female. God is beyond all those categories. Ultimately, God is Ein Sof, the infinite, infinity. But since people find it hard to relate to infinity, how can you wrap your head around infinity? How can you reach out to infinity? We're in infinity. You can't relate to infinity as if it's something separate. But people need some way to reach out to God, to call to God, to imagine God. And because we've done that in a masculine mode for so long, all of Western religion, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, God is so dominantly male, the Kabbalah tries to balance that patriarchal vision of God with the feminine. And that's what Shekhinah represents in the Zohar. That's the radical move that the Zohar and the Kabbalah make to imagine Shekhinah as the feminine half of God. 
Now, if there's a feminine half and a masculine half, that makes you think maybe there's a romance. Maybe there's a divine marriage, a divine union. And that precisely is, you might say, the major theme of the Zohar. One of the major themes, if not the major theme, is to unite the male and female halves of God. Now, this sounds somewhat pagan. This sounds somewhat mythological. How can a religion that, that brought monotheism to the world, how can Jewish monotheism promote this idea that there are two halves of God? That's a problem for the Kabbalah. The critics of Kabbalah often raise that. But the Kabbalists would say, ultimately, God is one. God is infinity. God is oneness. But we picture God because of our limited capacity, because of our human puny minds. We can't really comprehend the oneness of God, the infinity of God. So we imagine God in certain ways. It's not a totally accurate picture of the ultimate divinity, but it's the way that we relate to that which is beyond our normal comprehension. And so, so that is the central place of Shekhinah in the Zohar. Now, what does it mean to unite God? This sounds interesting and mythological, and, but what does that mean really to unite God? Isn't God already one? If God is one, why do we have to make God one? So the Kabbalah would say that God needs us. I think I mentioned this briefly before, God needs our active participation without ethical living, without virtuous living. God is not complete in some sense. God is waiting for us to make God manifest in the world. We can actualize the divine potential if we live a righteous life, if we cultivate a spiritual life. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? By fulfilling the commandments of the Torah or of your own religious faith. You, you contribute to God if you live according to your own standards, to, to your religious standards. And that's what the Zohar does page after page. If you observe the Sabbath, if you help your neighbor, you are stimulating the divine romance. You somehow are bringing these two halves of God together. You're making God real in the world. One of the most beautiful names for Shekhinah is Sod Ha'efshar in Hebrew, the secret of the possible. That's a name for the Shekhinah in the Kabbalah, not in the Zohar, but in another Kabbalistic book, the secret of the possible. I take that to mean that God is potentially here, but we have to bring out that potential by creating a just society, by living, by living a holy life. So that is the basic teaching of, of who Shekhinah is, what Shekhinah is. The image you're mentioning is very intriguing. To be a chariot for Shekhinah, uh, one example of this is how the tribes of the Israelites were arranged in the, de in, the, in the desert. They were camped around the Mishkan, right? The Mishkan, the dwelling place, is in the middle of the camp. And on all four sides of the Mishkan, of the dwelling of the tabernacle, on each side, you have three of the 12 tribes. So three tribes on each of the four sides brings us to a total of 12 tribes. So these tribes, you could say, are surrounding the Mishkan, protecting the Mishkan. And later, when the word Shekhinah is applied to this arrangement, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, and the Zohar, the Shekhinah is dwelling in the Mishkan. Finally, the Zohar says that the tribes of Israel constitute a chariot for the Shekhinah. Now, in some sense, the Shekhinah is dwelling in the Mishkan, but she's being carried along by Israel as they move through the desert. 
They move through the desert. They have to disassemble the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the dwelling, and then put it back together wherever they camp. So while they're moving, the Mishkan isn't standing. It's in many pieces. And Shekhinah is riding on the shoulders of the tribes of Israel, you might say. They, they are conveying her through the desert. So it's a beautiful, beautiful image. But I think in another sense, we should, we should understand this being a chariot for, for the Shekhinah in a broader way, in a way that we could apply to our own lives, which is that we can convey divinity into the world. That's really the spiritual challenge. As I said before, to, to make God real in the world, to actualize God in the world, one way to say that is to be a chariot for the divine. Now, people don't ride chariots very often these days, right? Except in movies. Let's just say to be a vehicle, to be a vehicle for the divine, to somehow carry God through the world as you move through your daily life. You're in the marketplace. You're in the, in the shopping center. How will you relate to the cashier? How you relate to someone you you bump into? Can you be humane? Can you be open? Can you be present with that person? So in doing that, you're conveying something of the divine presence uh, through the world. The Zohar has some interesting passages about the Torah and its interpretation. Would you touch on this topic for us? Yes, that really is the, the core of the Torah. I said Shekhinah is one of the main themes. But after all, the Zohar is a commentary on the Torah, a commentary on the five books of Moses. It's not an independent book of, of mysticism. It's not chapter one, God as infinity, chapter two, Sifirot, not in any way. It's not systematic. It just moves through the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the greatest book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Uh, it moves through those books and, and shows a deeper spiritual meaning verse after verse. So that's what the, what the Zohar does. The Zohar is a commentary on the Torah, a mystical spiritual commentary on the Torah. It says some remarkable things. It likes to take verses and almost turn them upside down. I'll give you an example. This is a very radical, startling teaching. We all know the beginning of the Bible, right? The first words in the Bible, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. It's very clear. Everyone knows it. Everyone learns it. The Hebrew is bereshit in the beginning. Bara created Elohim, God. So the first three words mean in the beginning God created. But notice the Hebrew actually puts the verb before the subject. The Hebrew doesn't say in the beginning God created. The Hebrew says in the beginning created God. Now, in English, you can sometimes put the verb before the subject. For example, thus spoke the king. It means thus the king spoke. But we say in very formal literary English, you can, you can put the verb before the subject. So maybe that's what's going on here. In the beginning, God created. But the Hebrew uses this other formulation, in the beginning created God. The Zohar says, no. Let's read the words in the exact order they come. What do the first three words of the Bible really say? In the beginning, it created God. That's how the Zohar understands the beginning of the Torah. Not that God created, that God was created. Now, how can you say God was created? God is, God is prior to creation. What the Zohar is really saying there, it's really talking about Ein Sof, the infinite. The infinite is the true ultimate divinity. And for the Zohar, the opening words of the Torah mean with beginning, with a certain divine beginning, 
Ein Sof, the infinite, created what we think of as God. What we think of as God is not the ultimate divinity. What we think of as God is our imagination of God, but that doesn't do justice to the ultimate God. So the Zohar is saying, let go of your, of your limited conception of God. Imagine something new. Imagine something more, more total. Uh, let me give you one, one other example, and then I'll read one or two brief passages. The Zohar loves to ask questions. The Zohar loves to challenge the biblical text. So moving just a couple chapters into Genesis, we have the famous story of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, you remember, they eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they're expelled from the garden. And the Hebrew says in Genesis chapter 3, Vayegaresh et Adam, he expelled the human. The Zohar is somehow able to, to turn that, that verse around. I, I don't want to go into great detail now because it'll be hard to follow, but you can, you can find it in the Zohar. Uh, the Zohar asks a question. Okay, the Bible says God expelled him. The Bible says he expelled Adam. The Zohar asks a question, who expelled whom? Who threw whom out of the garden? And it turns out the Zohar answers that question by saying, Actually, Adam threw the Shekhinah out of the garden. Adam lost his awareness. You could say Adam and Eve lost their awareness of the divine presence. They excluded God from their lives. They could have welcomed God into their lives. Instead, they excluded God from their lives. And then they found themselves uh, alienated. They themselves were expelled, but only because they expelled the divine. It's an amazing formulation that really is another way of saying that God depends on us. It's up to us whether we make God present or whether we exclude God from our lives. But let me read, I'd like to read to you um, one passage. This is a short parable from the Zohar. Just want to read it and then say a word or two about it. There was a man who lived in the mountains. He knew nothing about those living in the city. He sowed wheat and ate the kernels raw. Okay, you could say he's a health food nut. He lives in the mountains, he eats only wheat germ. One day he entered the city. They offered him good bread. The man asked, what's this for? They replied, it's bread to eat. He ate and it tasted very good. He asked, what's it made of? They answered wheat. Later they offered him thick loaves kneaded with oil. He tasted them and asked, and what are these made of? They answered, wheat. Later, they offered him royal pastry kneaded with honey and oil. Baklava, you might say. He asked, what are these made of? They answered, wheat. He said, surely I am the master of all of these, for I eat the essence of all of these. Wheat, because of that view, he knew nothing of the delights of the world, which were lost to him. So it is with one who grasps the principle and is unaware of all those delectable delights deriving, diverging from that principle. If I had the chance, I would ask one of you what you think this means, but uh, that's a hard thing to, to answer. What's going on with, with this mountain man? Is he, I mean, you can't deny that he does have the essence. He, ate, he eats wheat, all he wants is wheat. Maybe there's something good about not wanting these fattening foods, these the baklava, he passes up on the baklava. He's not that interested in the cake. The bread he likes, he likes when the wheat is turned into bread, but he knows what the bread comes from now. It comes from wheat. 
why shouldn't he just eat the essence? Isn't that the goal usually of a spiritual text to get the essence? This man wants only essence. But I think the Zohar is criticizing him, right? It says at the end, he misses out on all the delectable delights because he reduces everything just to that essential element. This is really a, a passage about how to approach scripture, about how to read the Bible. And you might say this man in the mountains is a fundamentalist. He's a literalist. He wants only the biblical text without any interpretation, without any coding, without any further development. He wants just God's word in its pure form, but he misses out on what? He misses out on all the beauty of interpretation because really Torah is meant to grow. Torah is meant to evolve. One image is that Torah is meant to ripen. The Torah ripens, and how does it ripen? It ripens when we discuss it. It ripens when we try to penetrate and try to figure out how can we apply this to our, to our life today. That's how a tradition stays alive. And this mountain man is so in love with the essence that he misses out on all the possible delectable interpretations of the Midrash, of philosophy, of Kabbalah, of what we might do today interpreting the Bible. So it's a beautiful sample teaching from the Zohar. Again, going back to his introduction to the Zohar in Volume 1, Green wrote that Kabbalah represented a, quote, radical departure from any previously known version of Judaism. What is the Zohar standing now in mainstream Judaism? Is it considered orthodox or heresy or something in between? Right. It really, it really has a unique uh, place in Judaism, partly because it was never studied widely for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. As I said, first the Zohar was just studied in very small circles. Then it spreads to wider circles. But it was so difficult, written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, but in this more difficult language for most Jews, Aramaic written with its own vocabulary. Sometimes there are invented words in the Zohar, right? what we call neologisms. The Zohar is filled with neologisms. It's hard to know what those words mean. So the Zohar was not something you could just pick up and read. And yet it was revered. It was revered as a holy text. You really could say for most of the Middle Ages until early modern times, most Jews believed, even if they didn't study the Zohar, even if they couldn't understand the Zohar, they believed that it was the holiest book uh, after the Bible, that it, that it conveyed the secrets of the Bible. So it had a very high standing in the Jewish world. I would say until, until early modern times, until the 19th century and the age of rationalism, and that's when you have this attempt to define, using exactly the word you used, mainstream. What is mainstream Judaism? Now, it's interesting, Arthur Green, who wrote that wonderful introduction, actually, he was also the person who conveyed to me the offer from the Pritzkers to translate the Zohar. They turned to him, uh, and he, he conveyed it to me. But uh, that word mainstream Judaism, that term was invented in the 19th century in Germany in order to do what? Basically, in order to exclude Kabbalah, the motivation of, of creating that word, mainstream Judaism, was to say, well, the mainstream is something. How do you make something mainstream? By excluding something that's not the mainstream. The mainstream is the Bible, the Talmud, the Midrash, Maimonides. What should be excluded, according to this rationalistic view in the 19th century, is anything superstitious, anything that could be irrational, anything basically mystical. Why were some Jews eager to exclude the mystical and the 
irrational or the superstitious because they wanted to present Judaism to the world, to Western Europe, as an enlightened religion, as something that could be integrated in, into modern times. They wanted Jews to be accepted into society, so they presented the Jewish religion as something very humane, very rational, without any of these supernatural elements or as few as possible. So because of that, you had a negative attitude developing toward the Kabbalah, I would say for part of the 19th century, for much of the 20th century. And then it was really in the, in the second half or the last third of the 20th century that I would say because of worldwide interest in spiritual search, in meditation, right, in self-discovery, all of those things beginning in the 60s that spread not only in, in America and Europe, but you, you really find it all over that fascination with, with meditation, with yoga, and in all the forms that that, that uh, took shape in Jewish and Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, so many, so many examples of, of that search for spirituality. Because of that, there was a reawakening of interest in, in Kabbalah within the Jewish world. And then because of Madonna and other people, the Kabbalah became attractive outside of, of the Jewish world. In terms of Jewish groups today and their relationship to the Zohar, to Kabbalah, and remember Zohar is a book, Kabbalah is the whole movement. I would say that uh, certainly the ultra-Orthodox, they accept Kabbalah totally, even though they claim that it goes back to that ancient rabbi in the second century, uh, their approach is, is to see the Zohar as a holy, one of the holiest texts. Anyone, any ultra-Orthodox Jew, any Hasid, any Kabbalist, anyone you see who's wearing uh, side curls or uh, a fur hat, you may see pictures of Hasidim. So all Hasidim accept the Zohar because all of Hasidism is an outgrowth of, of the Kabbalah itself. So anyone ultra-Orthodox accepts it totally. Of other Jewish groups, it really depends on the rabbi or the individual. Reformed Judaism uh, is especially open, I think, to the spiritual side. But there are Reformed rabbis who are very rational and they want nothing to do with mysticism. But uh, in the Reform movement, you have an openness to Kabbalah and Zohar. Among conservative and, and modern Orthodox Jews, not the ultra-Orthodox, the modern Orthodox, among conservative and modern Orthodox, it just depends on, on the rabbi or the group. So it's hard to make a general statement. Ultra-Orthodox are total proponents. Reform is somewhat open to it. And other Jews, it just, just depends who you ask or what they feel like that day. But I would say that the Kabbalah and Zohar have, have re-entered the Jewish mind after that brief uh, period of about uh, 100 years where the rationalists tried to exclude it. So, Daniel, what are you up to these days? Any further work on the Zohar? Yeah, uh, well, I finished the Zohar translation, as I said, about five or six years ago. And uh, since then, um, I've been doing two things mainly. One is uh, teaching Zohar online. I have an online course on Zoom, actually two courses. One of them, we study the Zohar in my English translation. The other one is a more specialized uh, class where we study it in the original Aramaic. And that, that smaller group is about 40 or 50 people. The English course has about 170 people. Uh, and it's an ongoing course. We don't repeat. We're basically moving straight through the Zohar. Now, after almost three years, we are in volume two of the Zohar. We do about five pages a week. I teach for an hour, and then there are questions and discussion. There's a Facebook group in which we keep up uh, discussion during the week. 
it's a wonderful group. I would, I would say there are about 40 rabbis in the group and maybe 40 people who know hardly anything about Torah or Bible and the rest of them in the middle with some basic knowledge of, of the Bible. But it's really, the course is intended for people who have never studied the Zohar. So anyone is welcome to take a look at it. I think you, you'll put the, uh, the link uh, in the chat or make it available to people. Basically, if you Google uh, Zohar course and my name, Daniel Matt, you will, you will come up with it. That's, uh, that's been a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. And in terms of my writing, I just completed uh, a biography of a person in the Bible. I think one of the most interesting characters in the Hebrew Bible, Elijah, Elijah the prophet. And the book is really about how he changes from being a, a, a kind of fanatical raging prophet who slaughters the prophets of Baal, the false prophets, how he changes from that into being a compassionate figure. And that's, his, that's the arc of his life. According to the Bible, he's taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And many people believe because of that, that he never died, that he's available, that he comes back to help people. And in Jewish tradition, you have hundreds of stories about Elijah appearing to save someone, to enlighten someone, to give help in, in one situation or other. So I'm tracing how he grows and evolves through Judaism and also in Christianity and Islam. Elijah is very central in the New Testament. Uh, he's, he's identified as John the Baptist. John, Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah. Some people think that Jesus is Elijah. Some people mistakenly thought that Elijah on the cross actually calls out, that, that Jesus calls out to be saved by Elijah. So he's very important in Christianity and in Judaism and in, in Islam as well. And that book will come out uh, next spring in a series called Jewish Lives, published by Yale. The title is Becoming Elijah. Well, this conversation has been very illuminating, Daniel. Thank you for joining us today. Good. Good to be with you. We'll stay in touch for sure. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.